On this episode of EAHS on Tap, the Clean Power Plan, what the D.C. Circuit Court's recent hearing means for clean air, we address the court's in-bank review of the Environmental Protection Agency's most ambitious regulatory initiative and a centerpiece of the Obama administration's climate change policy, the Clean Power Plan. Today, we have the opportunity to speak with Joe McDougald, a professor in residence on the faculty of the University of Connecticut Law School and the executive director of the Center for Energy and Environmental Law. Professor McDougald teaches courses in environmental and constitutional law and holds degrees from the Yukon uh, School of Law, Brown University, New York University, and the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. He is also the director of Yukon's Law, New LLM, and Energy and Environmental Law Program. Welcome to the podcast, Joe. Thank you for having me. All right. The Clean Power Plan is definitely an interesting and hot topic right now. In late September, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit heard oral arguments in the West Virginia versus EPA case, which is a challenge to EPA's Clean Power Plan. Let's start at the beginning, Joe. What is the Clean Power Plan and why is this such a big deal? Uh, It's a fascinating legal issue that places President Obama's EPA in direct conflict with a series of states, uh, uh, power producers, and also, intriguingly, Lawrence Tribe, the highly respected constitutional law professor from Harvard and Ironically, Professor Obama's old professor, so that's that you have a little interpersonal dynamic. Um, so what is it? Uh, in the big picture, uh, this is EPA um, fulfilling the promise of Massachusetts versus EPA, a uh, case that I personally spend a lot of time on, the 2007 case that said EPA could consider CO2 a pollutant under the Clean Air Act. And Clean Air Act sorts will know right away that this is an administrative rule, something put out by the executive authority of the agency, so it's not statutory. It's one of the things that make this such a political football. Um, I noticed that um, the Speaker of the House actually put out a video tweeting on this topic just a few minutes before uh, you and I hopped on this phone call. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it, it's criticizing it, uh, looking, I think, around 4 o'clock this afternoon. Um, and, on, and what is it in its most broad form? It sets a performance standard for CO2 for large power plants. Specifically, the EPA is using the Best System of Emissions Reduction, BSER, standards that regulate fossil fuels, and it's trying to control for CO2. It does more than that, though. It's asking states to generate state-specific CO2 goals. So now um, in Connecticut, the Connecticut DEP, where I am, would have a a job to look at its CO2 goals in the context of its SIP. Uh, that's the state implementation plan. That's how a state talks about its air quality. And it's setting guidelines for states to adjust their SIPs to implement for CO2. And, and you know, what does it really mean? States uh, get credit for moving away from CO2-emitting plants toward, toward power sources that are, um, that are more CO2-efficient or clean. So it has giant implications, and it's I don't think it's a surprise to anyone that it ended up um, in this major league uh, oral argument in D.C. and, you know, might might very logically be on its way to the Supreme Court. Interesting. So, Joe, you said that there's a lot um, that states are required to do. And, in fact, there's been a significant amount of state resistance to the Clean Power Plan. Um, up, up, to, up until now, 24 states have sued the federal government because they argue – Um, It will largely impact the economy. It'll shutter coal plants that are existing now and indubitably increase electricity rates as well as 
put the um, people that work in those coal plants out of work. So if the court upholds the clean power plan, would this effectively shutter coal power plants or is that simply hot air uh, backed by political jargon? I, I think it's, it's fair to say that this is, this is actually hot air, in my opinion. Um, first of all, we, you know, we do need to point out that the states are involved in the, in the standard setting. This is an exercise in cooperative federalism. Um, that a lot of states are trying to move toward renewable energy as a matter of their own state policy. But, you know, a lot of the conversation has been around the attack on coal. But the, the real threat to coal-fired power plants is not regulation. It's natural gas. Um, one of the best things to come out of the energy policy um, actions in the 1970s was the formation of the U.S. Energy Information Agency, EIA.gov, it's just an incredible source, and you can see what's been going on. Um, so if you look at, for say, the change in the power mix in the United States from 2014 to 2015, you'll see that coal declined by 12%, while natural gas grew at 3%, petroleum 2%, renewables 1%. But that natural gas number, if you look more broadly, has just been on a giant increase. Um, and it's important because it's nearly 28% of the total energy fuel mix as we sit. Um, one of the things that was really fascinating in the oral argument uh, in the end of September was, you know, right out of the box in response to the state's argument that the clean power plant is transformative. And transformative, when they argument is when they make that an argument, is not a good thing, right? They're trying to argue that it is outside the bound of what should be within regulatory authority. But from the bench, uh, pulling from one of the briefs, uh, one of the judges noted that that under the rule, that without the rule, only 32% of power plants would be coal-fired by 2030. So if, they, if we never did this, all the power plants in the state in the country would be down to 32%. With the rule, it'll be 27%. And when you look at that, it was a big moment, I think, in the argument itself, mm -hmm. but also, okay, so now we're talking about this entire change means that we go from 32% coal-fired plants to 27%. Puts it in a slightly different light, I think. So in addition to that, what other arguments were brought up um, during oral arguments, especially what I want to know is um, from the opposition? Sure. And oh, by the way, I, I should say on, on that last point, um, one of the uh, things I think it kind of leads into why you have so much argument going on is that it was no accident that the case was you know, listed as West Virginia versus EPA. You know, in West Virginia, um, you know, there are about 80,000 people that work in coal mining in the United States, and 20,000 of them work in West Virginia, and another 12,000 work in Kentucky. So you can understand why certain states are just, you know, very concerned. Sure. And this, I think, led to their argument. Um, you know, you're, you're absolutely, you know, right in the sense that um, a lot of the initial argument is about the overreach of the regulation itself. It's too big, it's transformative, um, and you can tell something that was intriguing, intrigued me was something that was within the, um, the brief filed by the, the states and came out almost verbatim in the oral argument is, in, is putting intent onto the EPA. And the thing, and I actually wrote it down to quote it, it said, um, frustrated with Congress, EPA now purports to have discovered sweeping authority in 
Section 111D of the Clean Air Act, a provision that has only been used five times in 45 years, to issue a power plan to force states to fundamentally alter electricity generation throughout the country. This is one of their lead arguments, to say that, that here here's, they've discovered new authority within a regulatory tool that wasn't supposed to be used that way. Um, so that's that's uh, that I think is you know in a nutshell the, their biggest argument. But there are others. Um, another really interesting argument has been um, trying to use the Obamacare case of King versus Burwell. You might remember that from <laughs> a few years ago. That was uh, yeah. sort of famous because when it was announced, um, all, all the news media didn't read the entire case. They only read half of it and they got right. it wrong. And suddenly they they thought it had struck down Obamacare. And then 20 minutes later, like <laughs> oh. And they realize they had to read the rest of it. Um, so the argument there is they're trying to say, look, this is also the type of commit, uh, the type of change where using the Burwell case that EPA wouldn't get deference. Um, as a lot of your listeners know, that when an agency has room within a regulation, they usually get a lot of deference if they've been administratively mm-hmm. reasonable in trying to interpret a regulation. Um, EPA, I think, in their brief, did a pretty good job batting this argument down. They're saying, look, uh, clearly the EPA is the, is the right agency to, to try and deal with emissions. Um, but there's one other sort of interesting argument, and it's a little on the techie side, that what they were trying to argue also is to say, look, there is language, and they're right, in Section 111, that says that if you are a source which is already being regulated in another section, 112, then you can't you we you can't regulate us. You can't you can't touch us in this source. And um, what's interesting about it, 112 is the hazardous air pollutant section. Mm-hmm. It's really for big sources that put out hazards. Um, EPA spent a lot of time responding to this because a lot of people, when you heard it, you said, well, that can't be right. Um, because we regulate under 111. But they made the point to say, while there may be this textual commitment, when you really look at it, it's ambiguous, and here are all the steps we took to making a a reasonable argument against it. So they argue, A, it's too big, B, the agency can't interpret it, and C, there's a textual problem with it. And they have other arguments, too. Uh, it's, it's It's a big brief and a long argument, but those are some of the highlights. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Joe. That's very helpful. So after you've kind of um, looked through this case and before the court has come down with a a holding, is there um, any legal significance to the D.C. court uh, sitting in bank? And and can you kind of explain what that means to some of our listeners? Sure. So um, there isn't legal significance. A lot of times you can be heard at the court with a three with a three panel member. You can request an en banc hearing. It might not get one. Um, it, but it was a bit of a surprise. So Jonathan Alder, I remember, wrote about this in the Washington Post as the surprise decision because what was intriguing is that the circuit court on its own, so sua sponte, um, determined that it would it would trigger an en banc hearing. It would mean that the entire um, the entire complement of judges would sit. And uh, there are several reasons that you could do this. Um, sometimes it comes up in times of financial conflict if you're trying to, as you can, to muster as many uh, judges as you can to sit, or if there's you know some sort of administrative concern. Uh, um, uh, in the, his article, he brought up, I believe, the Microsoft antitrust case from the early 2000s 
But I actually agree with his uh, analysis that um, it's, an, it's an unusual step, but it really is signaling that there are important issues. And it delayed the oral argument a few months, but what it does mean is that ultimately the court, if the Supreme Court were to pick it up, it's on a faster track. Interesting. So maybe the, this this will pry into uh, your scholarly knowledge. How do you think the court will decide in this case? Yeah, yeah, I, I can't remember who. Somebody <laughs> once said, and they were talking about the Supreme Court, that no one ever gets rich or published trying to predict what the court will do. So I mean, there's no level of scholarly knowledge. I think we need divination. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of people who are analyzing this, and and personally, I think because of the background principles of administrative law and the chance to really upend a lot of ways that we talk about agencies, and also mm-hmm. just from the oral argument. Uh, there, there's, there was a lot of oral argument, but um, I tend to believe that they'll, that the that this court will support the uh, the EPA's interpretation, and that we'll be marching our way right off to the Supreme Court with a uh, with the clean power plan in place, and that's when we you know the next phase of it we leave the the legal dimension and a lot of what happens and when the court gets picked up is enters the world of politics. Yeah, yeah, you you pretty much answered my my next question of. What happens if this is appealed and goes on to the Supreme Court? Do you have any any uh, thing to add to that? Sure. Well, sure. This is, I mean, this is really the big league of, of interpreting. Um, you can tell the story of climate law in the United States as something that's developed in the last 10 years across a whole lot of cases. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, Mass versus EPA was the fundamental case that made it administratively mm-hmm. reasonable for the EPA to regulate CO2, but that's that's not where the story left. This is a conversation that the Supreme Court and the EPA have been having um, almost every year, every other year since then. Uh, we've had a series of cases, Con versus AEP, uh, Kivalina, um, we had UARG. All of these are about the Supreme Court largely taking a hostile view of EPA's authority uh, to regulate CO2. Uh, in a in a different case, Michigan versus EPA, there are several cases by that name, but a recent one, they telegraphed a further willingness to chip away at EPA deference. So there's been a 5-4 majority on the court that has been, I think, would be uh, opposed to or hostile to this case. But now it's anybody's guess. Uh, Justice Scalia has passed away, as everyone knows. Uh, Merrick Garland has been sitting in limbo. Mm-hmm. We have a presidential election coming up with uh, two very different um, tracks based on even just the most recent debate for who the candidates will select as the types of justices. With that, although they were talking about other things, you know, uh, my ear was attuned to say who would be, you know, what would their admini- opinion of administrative agencies be? Yeah. So. And, and this case stands for a lot more than environmental policy. It's really a big case, or could be a big case, about how the courts will, will second-guess federal agent, uh, administrative agencies and what the power of the executive branch will be afterward. We don't know uh, what, this, what the, this will be. I guess just my one last point on it is let's remember that it's not just a national scale. The Clean Power mm-hmm. Plan was could serve as one of the key policy mechanisms for the United States government to participate in the Paris Climate Treaty. 
Right. So it's it's a big case both legally, but it's a big case internationally. And if you care about climate issues, it's one you should really watch. Yeah, lot, lots on the line here with this uh, Clean Power Plan case. Um, well, that's all the time that we have here on EHS on Tap. Thank you, Professor, for taking the time to provide us with your insight um, on the Clean Power Plan and the recent hearing. Um, if listeners would like to follow up with Mr. McDougald, he can be reached by email at josephmcdougald at uconn.edu. That's J-O-S-E-P-H dot M-A-C-D-O-U-G-A-L-D at U-C-O-N-N dot edu. This podcast was brought to you by BLR. Thanks for listening, everyone.